Welcome back, friends, philosophers, and fellow authors to this Wild Isle writing cast. I have with me the decorated Captain Michael. How are you doing this evening, Michael? I'm not sure about decorated, but uh, I'm doing all right. <laughs> um, so I've been I'm really excited to do this uh, all week, actually. Um, I think we're really going to dig into some places and have a bit of fun. Um, before we begin, I want to do some quick um, shilling on my part. First thing, if you listening want to be part of the podcast, you have an opportunity. Uh, I'm on all kind of social media, uh, or you can contact me via my website, wildislit.com slash contact. Um, go there and you can either recommend um, topics for this writing these writing cast conversations. Uh, or if I happen to know you or know, or know of you, if you know somebody that I know, just some way to verify you so you're not some random stranger on the internet, uh, you can join me on the podcast as well. The topics we have left, uh, delving into the depths this is a talk conversation about theme. Uh, we have a conversation on setting called The Author Spake Upon the Faces of the Waters. Uh, we have narrative voice potence versus pretense, exactly what it sounds like, regression to the mean when the rules of writing apply and when they do not. Uh, when is the weeb always wrong, though that very well may go to our guest today, Michael, at some point in the future. The nature of villainy, what makes a villain, and rear rights versus justified wrong, or sorry, justified writing. Uh, this is a conversation I hope to have with somebody about when the reader is correct in his or her criticism or when actually the reader is deficient for the literary text he or she is engaging in. Um, other than that, uh, while you're at my website trying to contact me at wildislit.com, you can check out my novel, Wand Smoke Broken. Now's the, a great time. Uh, within the next few months, I will be releasing a set of short stories. Uh, I think in pairs is how I'm going to do it. So read the first novel. You'll enjoy the short stories as they come out much more if you do. And if you're an author out there and you have a manuscript that you want to sharpen, or if you just really want to sharpen your skills, check out my editing service, The Wild Isle Style Guide. You can find that on my website as well. Again, that's wildislit.com. All right, uh, Michael, is there anything that you want to shill? Anything you want to throw out there before we begin? Uh, I don't have anything to shill right now. I wish I did, but uh, my schedule's been pushed back a little bit. I will say, though, I've seen some of those uh, short pieces or parts of them, and I'm looking forward to that. I think those are going to be some really cool, uh, really cool stories. Thank you, Michael. That means a lot for you to say. And today, uh, we're going to be talking about something tertiary related to each of those pieces that take place from the perspective of various characters. We're talking about character. Today's episode is called Human After All, uh, though I don't know, maybe that, that title is a little bit too forward. So the subtitle we'll have here is Compelling Characters, Established Faces, Archetypes, and Self-Inserts. Uh, so how I want to start this out Michael, I, this is usually how I start out all these podcasts, is to ask you what you think of the topic in general. So when I say character in regard to fiction, what does that bring to mind to you? Uh, for me, a character is a loose simulation of a real person uh, expressed at some level of detail in a story. Um, I didn't actually start in designing fictional characters for stories. I came out of playing uh, RPGs, especially played by post, and a lot of the same advantages and disadvantages to character that applied there, I kind of then evolved into how I take them in writing. And um, it it definitely becomes a matter of both how good of a simulation it is and also how detailed, because you can have a good shallow simulation of a character, and that's actually 
very useful sometimes. But you also, in some cases, want a very deep simulation of character. But you also have a, a bad shallow and a bad deep characterization where uh, no matter what how deep you make it, the characterization you've got going is just broken in all kinds of self-contradictory. And you can go as deep as you want, and it's just all fluff the deeper you go. Yeah, so we see that quality is divorced from uh, depth or shallowness. Yeah. And in the academic terms, we might call it uh, roundness versus flatness. Um, do you think that those are the same thing? So shallowness and flat and roundness and depth, just for the sake of the conversation? Uh, yeah, I just I use uh, I just use shallow and deep for because that's from more my background. But uh, roundness or multidimensionality would be another way of uh, saying that, where uh, you know, flat and shallow are pretty analogous concepts. And uh, how, because the next two concepts that are always paired with that in academia are uh, dynamicism, or so whether a character is dynamic or static. Um, how do you feel that the characters changing over the course of a story or not changing um, is related to that character's uh, flatness or shallowness and or their depth and or roundness? I, I generally get the sense that most characters who are established uh, in a very round sense and very deep sense have to evolve in some way over the course of a story. Usually when we're talking about this, we're talking about, uh, though not always, you're talking about your your primary characters. And if I'm going to define that term, that's your, um, your main characters, the driving characters behind the plot, your protagonists, their immediate sidekicks. Perhaps the villain is also one of these primary characters. There's not very many of those where everybody else is generally secondary. When you're talking about a those are generally the ones who are established to a, a large depth, and those are often the people who have evolution over the course of the story for good or for bad. Um, and when you talk about a, a character who's flat, who doesn't really evolve much, who doesn't really learn and progress and change who they are, generally speaking, especially if you're talking about events that are high crisis events, it's not a good simulation of a person to say, that they didn't evolve in some way during those events because people change that, you know, high stress events change people. And we should establish that, that hopefully should happen to our characters as well. But it might not happen in a way that's apparent to the reader and to the narrator who you're the author is talking through. So that's where you get a character who is flat, who doesn't, who is static, who doesn't really change, is somebody whose change is in a way that just doesn't matter. So we're just going to act like they don't change at all for the purpose of the story. You know, that relates to something uh, in terms of characters and the reason why we have, well, there's many reasons why we have flatter characters as opposed to all round characters, and especially as opposed to all round dynamic characters. Um, it's something that I had broached, I should say, in a literature course at a time. So tell me what you think of this. So when I went to look at the the roots of the the word character, it really relates back to individual symbols. Like when we, you know, if you have like Twitter and you have a character limit, something like that. Um, and that's like a representation of a, of a sound. And then I, I worked it at the way up. It actually it interrelates with um, like a moral uh, at yep. a certain point, like a lesson. Um, and you mentioned in your description that like a loose simulation of variable uh, depth. And I really liked mm -hmm. that. Uh, the reason why is because I think that characters in a story are to varying degrees not – they are not people. They are not – in fact, our, our, our goal perhaps, or the goal of many authors, 
isn't or perhaps shouldn't be to make a hyper-realistic person. At, rather, the goal of a character is to take a certain number of facets of a person, depending on the depth of that character, a certain amount of change, depending on the, the change that is made to represent, and merely, not merely, but to excise that, and to present that in narrative and not 100% the whole of a person on the page. So it's short. Oh, go ahead. So I think there's something else there because you, you said it's, it's not to create a hyper-realistic person. And you're, you're correct. In a sense, it's to describe a super-realistic person, to create – to basically to take out the parts that don't matter for the purposes of the story we're telling and tell somebody who isn't necessarily real but could be real and, more importantly, somebody who the reader can then apply lessons to um, or draw, the, draw them from. Um, because – and this is something that I, if you catch me talking about writing anywhere, you find out I consider the a, the story as a concept to be a tool. It is a non-physical tool that humans develop to solve problems. And you'll see other people talk about this. It's not my idea originally. But when you're talking about this, the character is a, is a part of that tool. Essentially, it's the leverage point. Um, it, you and just like with a lever, you can you can put that wherever it is on the beam, and you still get a useful tool. Um, a character can be the lesson you look at and say, well, you know, that person made the right choice and see something good happen to them. It could be they made the right choice, something terrible happened to them, but it was still the right choice. It could be they made the wrong choice and they got away with it, but we shouldn't do that. And it can also be they made the wrong choice, something bad happened to them. I should not be like that. And there's there's places for all those sorts of stories. And there's places for those sorts of characters. Yeah, that fits right in from, with what I've read from um, Aristotle's view on tragedy specifically. He thought that essentially because of the necessity of a um, – you have the tragic hero, so they have a flaw. But they don't just have a flaw. They are they're fundamentally sympathetic. It's like a flaw that you could have. And the, the tragedy befalls the hero always, always, always because that hero decides at either some one point or at many points or sometimes even before the story really started. Like if we're talking about Oedipus Rex, his, mm -hmm. real, his real flaw happened before the story started. Uh, and so that one flaw is not overcome and then we get the, the outcome that we can, let's say, feel compelled by and that's really the the segue i was fishing or digging for i suppose as, as opposed to fishing um is the question of is what makes let's say you talk to a character as a tool i want to relate that in so obviously so if, if characters are tools oh by the way if you hear that snapping in the background uh my apartment happens every time it warms up here to become somehow infested by flies so I have a bug zapper so I apologize but otherwise they will drive me insane um, but I haven't heard him yet oh you haven't okay great well no. I shouldn't have mentioned it too late now um, oh, well. but no so uh, characters as tools now with, with the interesting thing about literature insofar as it is a kind of uh, it is kind of tool for mankind and the characters play their role in that not all stories, um, let's say, seem to be usable by all people, and then some stories don't seem to be usable at all, while other stories seem to be incredibly so. Um, and I, part of that has to tie into compelling 
characters, right? Because if you, if there are no comparing compelling characters, like maybe the plot is really really interesting, and so maybe that accounts for a, a chunk of stories. But another chunk, the plot is not going to save the story, no matter how interesting it is if the characters themselves are terribly unlikable or terribly dull. So that you know invites the question for those of you out there who hate that I misuse the phrase begging the question, though I, I would argue it's not, doesn't matter. What makes a, a character fundamentally compelling? And I want to know this from both the point of like a deep character and from a flat character, because I've seen compelling flat characters before as well. Um, I generally focus on the answer for deep or rounded characters, uh, which is that as designed, it's immediately apparent what they want, what's holding them back, and uh, significant experiences that influence how they tackle their problems. Uh, obviously, one, one of my favorite literary characters from historical literature is, is Hamlet in Hamlet. It's a, he's a great character. Um, it's obvious, like Hamlet is a, a memorable character because you get, um, he has a, a, his history, his, his dad was murdered and his mom married the, uh, his uncle, who he then, he suspects, but then later learns, did murder his dad. Um, he's, he's been robbed of the throne. He's good at some things. He's bad at some things. He's kind of crazy, but he plays it up to, to act like he's more crazy than he is. And right, all of that right there is, is stuff you can get from Hamlet very quickly. In fact, it's stuff that you learn about Hamlet pretty much early on in the, in the story that he's, you know, everything there and every all that influences everything he does and his tragic flaw of course is that he has to get revenge he's he's honor bound he's i think he's even visited by his dad's ghost and is ordered you have to get revenge on your on your uncle when it's like he has so many opportunities to get out of there and go live a life he he goes out and lives a, basically goes and lives a, a couple years as a pirate at one point during between the acts of the play and comes back it's like Dude, you were perfectly successful as a pirate. Go, go, go! Do that. We'll be happy. But he can't let himself do it, and it's because that loyalty to that idea that you have to provoke, you have to get revenge for this murder that happened. Um, it brings him back into his ultimate destruction. That's um, it's it's really tough to write characters like that, um, but it's nearly impossible to write them flat. Um, what I find is it's if you if you want to make a flat or shallow character like that you ended up having to develop them further and then scale back their portrayal in the story and just keep most of it to yourself. That way, you know, which, you know, when you know which details you need, you know what the answer is, but you have a lot more answers waiting. Uh, I'm sure there's a more efficient way of doing it, but I've never come up with it. Yeah. I want to talk, jump on for a few seconds about Hamlet in particular, uh, because I, I really, really enjoyed Hamlet and, um, and his character was, is deep in a way that you 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 are right to say it's very i mean it's difficult to do in in a dynamic and round way for that matter because of the uh, i think the difference between a very deep character and a somewhat deep character versus like a very flat character where hamlet uh you mentioned like he won't let go of this revenge but he takes it even further if i remember right his dad's ghost shows up and would say criticizes him for taking unnecessary vengeance on his mother, like torturing her uh, psychologically, um, and yes. and then also when he has the chance to to kill his uncle, he finds him praying and thinks, yep. oh, if I kill him now, he'll go to heaven. 
no, 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 no. Uh, and big spoiler at the end, he doesn't just kill his uncle. He, I, I'm pretty sure he runs him through with a poisoned sword and then also makes him drink poison at the same time. Yep. <laughs> you know, it's like and when you, you, you find um, that scene so, where he's standing behind the curtain and waiting for like seeing his uncle praying. He's like, Oh, I can't kill him now. He'll go to heaven is one of my, it, that tried that scene is, is so good because it describes his tragic flaw. He doesn't just want to kill his uncle. He wants to make his uncle suffer. And that's his tragic that's that that right there describes his tragic flaw and it's it's so it's such a human thing right for him to to say that but he's so wrong and it gets him killed and it's like i i i like it it's such a brilliant piece of literature um there are other examples of this in literature of course but that's that's still one of my favorites because i mean i don't think they make you read it in high school anymore but they used to back in the day and uh, i think they should still they should, but unfortunately, uh, when I tried to teach it to college students, they couldn't read it. So, ha, ha, ha. Uh, I agree with you that I wish it was taught at the high school level. I worry that the literacy rate needs to be brought up a little bit first. Um, but yeah, I mean, this kind of touches a bit on the... I want to talk about what we talked about with, with flatter characters and how it's difficult to make them as compelling, because I have an example uh, that I think works, uh, but I'll get to it in a moment. One more thing with Hamlet, because it's just something that t- that touches archetypally, and I, I kind of want to bring that up later as well, is that it's not just personal revenge that I think Hamlet embodies. Because when he comes back before he, you know, he's supposed to be shipped off to get murdered, and then he tricks the, uh, the he, he doubles out the letters and he gets his two ex-best friends murdered instead when they arrive yep. in England. So it's like, you know, oh, okay. And then when he gets back, he sees the army outside of the, uh, I don't know if it's right outside of the castle, but I remember he stops and looks and sees all these men and he's like, huh. And Shakespeare doesn't have him say or think anything about it, but he does write down that he looks over and sees all these people. Um, and what that tells me is that part of what makes, I think, Hamlet compelling is that it's not personal vengeance per se. It's like this interpersonal instinct to vengeance being fully articulated. It's he not, is so yeah, it's not ven- that he's it's, sorry, I don't want to it's not that he necessarily wanted vengeance that hard. It's that he feels like he should want it. And that make that makes him go on harder than it would if he just had a personal emotional desire for revenge. Because this all happens years after his father died. Like he's he's kind of emo about it, but he's he's mostly over it. He it's that he feels like he should get revenge and that drives him harder than actual feelings for revenge. And that it's an interesting and nuanced characterization that I I I don't know. I st- I'm still blown away by it. It was written what 500 years ago, and it's still good. Yeah, I mean, it's it's what I would call like if you read um, John Milton's Paradise Lost, Satan in that uh, epic poem. It's it's the same. This is why I I, I kind of think it's archetypal. Uh, it's the same spirit where it's not just I want to take vengeance on someone who hurt me. It's this. These things that hurt me are I'm typifying as being, let's say, uh, core or intrinsic to life and being itself. 
and I feel justified in bringing it all to ruin. Like, I want to see the whole castle get taken over. I want to see everybody dead. I want to torture yeah. my mother. It, you know, that that speech he gives, a real famous one where it starts out to be or not to be. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if you actually go on and listen to the rest of the soliloquy, Hamlet, um, he is having an existential struggle uh, with life and being itself and whether, you know, uh, whether life is justified and is only afraid of suicide because he's he's terrified, uh, presumably because he's Christian, that like, oh, wait a minute, I'm just going to kill myself and go to hell and suffer worse tortures. Maybe this is a bad idea. Um, it's worse. But, it's even better than that because he's doing that soliloquy as he's doing that knowing he's being spied on. That whole thing is being put, that whole soliloquy everybody talks about, this to be or not to be speech, is given deliberately because he knows somebody's listening. It's it might be his actual thoughts, but he's playing it up to make him sound more crazy and suicidal than he actually is. I mean, perhaps, but he does lead everything to ruin and super murder his dad. So yes. I think, I think perhaps he actually does pathetic. feel that way. <laughs> yeah, like he, um, he he has these thoughts. He's playing them up and making himself seem more crazy than he is. But he's not coming from making it up. He's he's going through actual thoughts that are in his head in a way that. I think he thinks he can get something out of by making himself sound crazy. Yeah. And so that, that really touches at, at something to, before I jump on to the flatter characters, which I'm about to do for those of you out there listening. Um, I think what makes him compelling then is actually that, that same, those same impulses are in, I like to think of them as instincts because I think they're, they're part of being a human being and we all have them, um, those feelings. Can we are all vulnerable to those things, right? Um, in the yes. same way with with Oedipus Rex, you know, uh, we all might run away from our fate, if you will. Now, I'm not like a fatalist, like you might think, like this thing is fated to happen. Uh, but we have things that are that we can't run away from that are just part of our lives. But when we try to, and when we, and I should say, when we try to run away from them, we typically only invite disaster because if they are by their nature inescapable uh then they will catch up with us one day and cause us to do something disgusting and terrible right um but yeah we're, oh, we're fated to have to have to have to handle things we're not fated to have a particular outcome when that happens and this is something that human true true of actual humans in a psychological sense but it also is true of characters and it is one of the reasons that the character and the story as a tool are so useful is because we can confront that the idea that there are things we don't want to deal with that we will have to deal with. And we can do it in a fictional context so that we can actually then go on to face those things a little easier ourselves when the time comes. Yes. Uh, this is also a really good argument for why people should read the classics. Uh, I, I don't know if anyone's picked up on that uh, by now, but if you read the classics, uh, they will nourish you in this way, even if sometimes they're hard. Um, now I mentioned, I wanted to, to bring up flatter characters who are, um, would say also compelling and also, you know, very interesting. And they invite the reader to, to read on. You had mentioned, um, the only way you could think of an author to do this. And I think that's actually how authors do it is that they, they have fully developed a character, but they only present to the reader so much of that character. 
Um, and one that comes to mind, uh, again, from a series that, uh, for those of you listening, you might have heard me mention another podcast, Captain is not the uh, uh, the biggest fan of, is the Game of Thrones series. But some of the side characters are actually very, very, very interesting. In fact, to be honest, the side characters are almost always more interesting than the protagonist of the story. The one I'm thinking of in particular, his name is uh, Barristan Selmy, and he's one of the Knights of the King's Guard. And you don't get to see a whole lot of him uh, throughout the course of the story. Um, he has some admirable traits that you do get to see, which make him immediately likable. Um, you see him put in some tough situations, uh, but then he kind of goes away, and then you just hear about him. Like little tidbits dropped here and there where other characters compare him to other people who we do know a lot more about. And I found through the course of the story, and you see this with other characters as uh, as well, uh, characters like Bloodraven, um, Shara, Seastar, uh, I try to think of some, some more, but uh, essentially just many characters, Serial uh, Florel, uh, very famously, is very very much like character who only shows up in the very first book for a tiny bit. Uh, but they attract a kind of, I wouldn't call it intrigue, but there is a suggestion that there is much, much more to this person. And you can easily, very easily imagine them in different situations with just as much depth as you could a, a dynamic character. Uh, do you have any examples from uh, fiction that you've read of this, these types of characters? Um. I have a couple examples from a somewhat less classic uh, series. This is something that I find uh, is one of the strengths of Terry Pratchett's work. Um, I've been a fan of his Discworld novels for a long time. Um, I highly recommend them. Of course, my readings list, including Hamlet and Terry Pratchett, is a bit... Uh, other than them both being English, there's no similarity, but that's fine. Um, the One of the things that he does is he lays out just characters. And they have names. And in the first couple books, they appear, and then they vanish, and you never hear about them again. But then later on, potentially 10, 15 years later, when he wants more material for this world, he can just pick them up and write a whole series of three or four books about these characters who were mentioned maybe once or twice or were in one scene. And the reason for that is that even though the series fundamentally is uh, it's very comedic. It's It doesn't really take itself seriously from a content perspective. It takes itself seriously from a construction perspective in that um, all the things that are in there are developed or could be developed in that way. And I think that when a character like, for example, there's uh, in the first scene of the first uh, Discworld book, you have your protagonists watching a city burn with a pair of guys who just don't show up again. Um, they're referenced again in the book a couple times, but their names are uh, uh, the one is named the Weasel. Yes, that's his. That's the only name you get for him. And then his his friend. Oh, I don't remember his name. He's a big chunky barbarian with a big sword. And they they go around being you know standard like thieving semi bandit bandit style quote unquote heroes in this world. And there's other people like them, but they're portrayed in a very consistent way for themselves. Where you at the beginning of the book you're intentionally being led to believe that maybe they're the heroes of the book. And then the actual heroes, this unlikely pair of total idiots, wanders into the scene. And um, then you sort of begin to learn that they're actually the people who this book is about. And it's a really clever way of doing it. But even in the little short amount of time that they're in there, 
they're portrayed as interesting people with skills, with you know weaknesses, and they complement each other both in dialogue and in skill, and it's very well done. So it seems to me that even if you have a character that is presented in a somewhat flat way, when the setup is enough to to signal to the reader that this person actually isn't flat, you're just not seeing it all. Um, that is enough to to pull to to compel someone to seek them out further or be interested in reading about them further. Um, that's what I picked up be. from. Yeah, it's it's not just that though. Obviously, the rest of the book has to work. Uh, an interesting character, as you've mentioned, in a an otherwise very flawed uh, story, can be interest can be worth looking into, but only if you've kind of gotten stuck in this story and you really aren't that interested in the main storyline. It's really when the story is really good that people start wanting to know more about the side characters in general and those flat secondary characters who don't really have a deep characterization to them start getting some. There's some demand and some interest in fleshing them out. So you kind of like yeah. There should be the seed there for that possibility, but the the interest in that sort of thing from a reader perspective is probably not going to be there unless the main the main story sticks its landing. Yeah, so that means that it's you know that's kind of something that we suggested at the beginning that a character isn't the only thing, right? You've got the plot, you have the setting, um, and how those things are constructed together. So characters can't take you the whole way all the time yeah i i've said this to people before this is hardly a new idea but a uh i wrote this down in my notes because there's a very pithy way of saying it and i can't find it um oh yeah the that a, a character um sorry a character is defined by this the world that they're they're in their desires drive the plot and the plot influences the world which then defines the characters so it's not it's a it's a cycle it's sort of like rock paper scissors you can't you can't just work on rock and expect the paper and the scissors to figure themselves out you have to iterate through them if you make changes to the world that should change the character at least in terms of their upbringing and things like that that has to be accounted for so you can't just treat one of these elements by itself you have to there's principles to each one, but they have to be, they can't be worked individually in a vacuum. And I've seen quote unquote writers who say, I'm going to spend all my time world building, all my time designing characters, but they never get anywhere in terms of a story because they're just doing the part that they think they're best at. And it's in a vacuum. It doesn't, it doesn't lead anywhere. Yeah. I think this is a concept uh, called versimilitude. Uh, I'm sure most everyone's heard of it, but just in case people haven't, we talked about how characters aren't exactly hyper-realistic, uh, but what you described is uh, a high amount of verisimilitude where they are represented of people in environments that people exist in, which means they have to respond to their setting and have desires that exist within the setting. Uh, and the desires drive the, the plot, and so now these things are all connected. and. We might say, now there's different ways you can employ verisimilitude, so this is being very general, but we might say that characters need to have a certain amount of verisimilitude, both, uh, let's say, along with the, the setting and with the plot in order to make the story move, in order to make them feel right and to have their changes feel, uh, for lack of a better word, believable, I think is actually a, a, a decent word. Yeah, because you're not trying to convince the reader 
believable is a good word. You're not trying to convince the reader this actually happened. You're trying to convince them that given the setup, this could happen. And that's kind of important is you're not telling them this did happen. You're persuading them this could happen. And I think that's something that a lot of people could use to keep in mind more if they're, uh, especially people who are just starting out writing. You don't make something happen just because the outline said this needs to happen in chapter five. The characters need to want to do that thing or need to feel like they have no opportunity to do anything else so that it does happen, so that it doesn't just happen because the outline said so. And that's especially true when a character needs to make a mistake. You need to set up a character's mistake beforehand. Like if somebody's good at, you know, is a sharpshooter, then missing the target at one particular time when all the chips are down seems like a cheat. It seems like it's random. It seems arbitrary. But if you establish that they don't do well under pressure, but when they're out, you know, plinking cans in the backyard, they bullseye them every time, maybe then it makes more sense, right? And I think that's a that's a problem with character that I think a lot of people don't do very well, unfortunately. Now, I want to pursue that. So I wanted to talk about archetypes, but I don't put that on the back burner for a second because I am curious why it is, in your experience, that people oftentimes struggle with let's say compelling characters struggle with believable characters. Believable characters is probably where we want to start. Um, if there are bits about the problem being uh, self-insert power fantasies, we'll put that aside too, because I do want to get there. But that's I, a I whole other that's, problem. Yeah, that's a whole chunk. But just in the, in the general sense, what do you think are the reasons why lots of new authors, let's say, or perhaps even, well, hopefully not, but long-standing authors struggle to write believable characters? Um, I think a lot of it comes down to how they construct the story. And I think what happens is initially they have an idea and characters that go with that idea for the plot and the world building. It all works together. But one or the other evolves past the others and the others don't get updated. Oftentimes this is most noticeable when the characters evolve past where the plot wants them to be at a particular point. Um, so that the, whether this is evolving over the course of the story or through edits, it doesn't really matter. Um, where in a particular scene they need to do something, and that thing is reasonable for the initial version of the character, but then an update to something, or maybe just some something that ch they changed as they went, they were being written into the the draft, even the first draft, um, changed to the point where in that scene, that action they need to do to get to the next scene that's planned is no longer in character, and it's so easy as a writer to just say oh, well, the outline says it has to happen here. Otherwise, I don't get to the next scene and all the rest of my outline's bad. So I'm just going to make them do it anyway and lampshade it. And that's not believable. You have to go back and figure out a way of justifying that action. Nothing exists in a vacuum and things don't just happen, especially people making decisions about life or death, death situations don't just happen. And it's obvious when they just happen is, I guess, my point. I mean, I definitely agree with you that it's really obvious when you read it. Do you think the author at the time that they wrote it um, has that whole the moment? The reason I, I, I say this is because I know when I'm in the process of drafting, um, I'm in this kind of semi-affugue state of creativity where I'm I'm writing and then only after I've written it down do I actually really know what I just wrote down. Um, do you think that a lot of writers... Because other people have different processes 
than than mine, surely, that it really is a moment of conscious, like, oh, well, I need to progress the story, so I just do? Uh, or do you think they just get swept up in the vague notions of their story in a similar way that their outline conveys it and just aren't paying attention? Uh, I think it's partly that. It could also be that in their head, the character, a character doesn't exist as a single character in your head as you're writing. They exist as sort of a, it's almost like a, a two-dimensional grid. There's who they are at the beginning of the first draft and who they are at the end of the last draft. And you have two axes of evolution there, who they are over the course of your own development of the story and who they are over the course of the story. You kind of have to keep, unfortunately, you don't really need all the early draft stuff once you're nearly done, but you kind of have all that stuff in your mind at a given time. And there's a whole lot of those little boxes where that action's probably still valid. And when that writer comes out at that point and they say, well, this seems like something this character would do. It's because they have a, a bunch of different ideas about that character that aren't in the final draft and the reader can't see. And those might have been valid understandings of the character at some point, but when the reader gets it, it's just not there. So they're confused. It's very tough to keep that all straight. And I'm, it's a miracle so that, that most people manage it. Well, I wouldn't even say most, that some people manage it. Yeah. And probably no one manages it before you get to the final draft. Like, I don't know how many times when I'm editing, it's like, wait a minute, this character wouldn't do this. Like just delete. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, this is why a certain chapter of a certain novel is still on the on the on the blocks at the moment because there's a whole bunch of this character wouldn't do this, but I still need a particular scene to happen that requires initially required them to do the current thing that isn't right. So I'm still like taking it all apart and shuffling things around and moving the deck chairs as the Titanic sinks and all that stuff. So uh, there's a whole lot of mess there, and everybody runs into this problem. It's just I. There might be some of the people seeing the problem and then just going, I didn't see that, and moving along. And there's probably some just not seeing the problem at all. Yeah. Um, here's a question that popped into my mind I want to ask before the conversation is out. So I'm going to ask it now because I think it's relevant to writing either poorly or writing well characters. Um, and it has to do with these concepts of um, empathy and sympathy. So uh, really quickly, I want to define these. So because I think people use the words interchangeably and, uh, you know, however people want to use them is how they're going to use them. But for the sake of a clear conversation, uh, I always try to define empathy as being the skill of being able to, uh, let's say, I won't say no, but predict might be the right word how a person is likely to feel under given circumstances, given that person's experiences and life circumstances, right? So the idea is like a sociopath can be extremely empathetic and kind of needs to be in order to prey on you because a sociopath needs to know how you're going to think and feel and act in order to get you to uh, go along with a con, let's say, versus sympathy, which I've always defined as the emotive or emotional response one feels when they see someone else in a, another state of emotion. So if you see someone who's sad, who, uh, you know, see the kid who scraped their knee and then you feel bad because that, well, that kid scraped their knee, right? So it's, a, it's almost like a compassion or a pity response. Um, why am I separating those? Well, I find that when you're writing, the empathy skill is extremely useful because 
if you don't have it, then you could really only write from your own perspective. So it doesn't really matter what the character is. They're always just going to act like how you would act, even if that's totally, you know, not proper for their characters. And why do I bring up the bit about sympathy? Well, I suspect that insofar as people are naturally very sympathetic, oftentimes they confuse their sympathetic emotions with the skill empathy and so assume that they know how other people feel when what they are reporting to themselves are actually their own emotional responses in regard to what they see, which may or may not be an accurate representation of what somebody else feels. Why is any of that relevant to writing? I suspect that insofar as someone has not taken steps to develop, uh, let's say, skills in empathy, um, which might just involve, you know, reading from a various uh, array of perspectives, uh, actually bothering to listen to people, just taking the practice of doing it and having to deal with other people and their emotions. And like, you know, if you've ever been in a long-term relationship, if you want it to last, you better freaking develop your skills about empathy or else you're screwed. Um, versus, you know, there's a lot of people who might be, if we're familiar with the big five model, high and trade open, or not openness, agreeableness, uh, particular aspect, compassion. And so they just feel very naturally compassionate and then might write characters whom they feel are, uh, or who I should say, they feel are, uh, let's say, different from themselves, but are really, uh, really flat. The, the easy example of the sympathetic thing is if you pick up a random romance novel in a bookstore and just start reading for a little while, uh, most of the characters are these weird flat representations that you can tell where tr someone tried to make a person and they just, it's like a, a skewed perspective filtered through, let's say that, that, uh, that agreeable trait. Um, anyway, I, I've gone far in a field. What do you think about the necessity of empathy as a skill? Do you think it's a skill? Do you think this is relevant to writing uh, good characters or not? Yeah, so empathy in the sense you're defining it is basically just the ability to simulate somebody else's perspective in your mind. And unfortunately, we live in a culture where that's also known as bad think. Uh, so a lot of people don't develop that skill, um, the ability to to see why somebody would disagree with you. Um, I'm not sure you need that to be a, a writer. You can write stories about, you know, the the hoorah, the, the Marines going and fighting alien bugs. And um, I'm I'm not talking about Starship Troopers here because Starship Troopers is actually a very good book with some very well-developed characters. But you can write the simple story of the macho guys going out and fighting alien bugs and winning, right? And people will read it. It's, it's a fine story, but the perspectives are just the bugs want to eat you and the Marines don't want to be eaten. It's not that complicated, but you you can't have a lot of character drama in that context. A lot of the, and this is why I think a lot of modern writing's character drama falls flat, is because the writer doesn't doesn't really have a way in their head of processing the idea that somebody might disagree with them for legitimate and virtuous reasons. Whether or not you agree with them, that doesn't mean you have to agree with them. They have a different perspective. It's very important, and obviously you you know I I tend to do to do a lot of character drama as a main driving force in a lot of my own writing, and. It took a long time to be able to, to do that, 
a lot of a lot of the the sort of mechanical way we look at writing doesn't necessarily work if you you know doesn't necessarily work with that uh, a lot of people look at for example and this is this is my favorite example I'll, I'll refer to this but how many fantasy novels came out between uh 2016 and 2021 where the villain is basically donald trump in spiky black armor and the reason for that is because in that person's head all villains are the same person all villains have the same perspective because it's just bad anybody who disagrees with me is bad so they're in the villain camp and there's only one villain camp there's only one hero camp and this is why they in their heads they they put up signs with um you know, talk about referencing them to Harry Potter, because and for the other way, if if they knew anything about that, they wouldn't do that because uh, that's a bad a bad one to use. But in their mind, there's a hero camp and a villain camp, and there's only one valid perspective in the hero camp, and all other perspectives are the same, and they're all in the villain camp. And unfortunately, a lot of people who have this sort of stunted view of the world, who don't have any empathy as you define it, uh, go and try to write, and what happens is the characterization is very shallow because there can never really be any character exchange of any meaningful value. So what are your characters going to talk about? If the only two alternative positions on anything are the virtuous way and the evil way, why would you have a conversation? Like who's learning anything from that conversation? Certainly not the reader, none of the characters are. So it's, it's really tough to write a good character drama that way. Uh, and by tough, I mean, probably impossible. I'm not going to say, definitively because it's always possible somebody figures it out but it's and it's very tough to to figure out how to teach somebody not to do that and i've in the end i've usually just give up on it if i have somebody trying to who is of that perspective trying to have me help with their work i won't do it because you basically have to totally change the writer as a person before that where that text is ever going to change in any meaningful way and that's really sad and frustrating because i want to help them but i just i'm not their therapist basically and I don't know what to do about it. Maybe you found a better way, but I certainly haven't. Uh, well, no, I haven't. Actually, uh, I've run into this problem, though, um, with not with anyone I've worked with as a client. Um, well, no, I don't think I have, actually. Uh, and I work with a variety of clients. Uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar, uh, I come from this like wacky, like ANCAP libertarian side of things. And sometimes I get clients who are uh, very left-wing and uh, what I've described as is very woke. And sometimes I get clients who are the exact opposite of that, uh, who are extremely right-wing um, and in the in the very modern sense too, right? So not in the sense that I might be pitched into that camp, so that's even debatable. Well, it's probably not debatable, but um, but I've been lucky enough that my clients have taken my advice when I say, hey, you know, the way you're representing these uh, characters that are supposed to be negative is like this really terrible straw man. Like, what if I did this with like your protagonist? Like, how would you feel about it? And they say, oh, that's a good point. I would feel pretty bad. <laughs> um, and they, they take my advice. But for the most part, people have a really hard time imagining themselves to be um, let's say capable or or even drawn toward evil. So I come from I don't know, shouldn't come some. Uh, I have a, a somewhat of a background studying union psychology, which is my going to be my background. But like if you're from a religious background, you might have particularly like a Christian background. You might have the idea like we are fallen and therefore innately sinful. Um, that usually, well, I should I would hope would usually give people the idea that your protagonists are not 
quote unquote the one good man and the villains are just the archetype uh, archetypes of evil for the most part what you're dealing with is something more complicated like even really good um depictions of the devil right as being the great evil um there are still things that he says are true that are true because i've noticed that like uh the classic cases mephistopheles right he appeals to faust's reason and he doesn't say things that are invalid right he makes judgments that are perhaps uh dark and evil and twisted and leading toward utter destruction but it's not like you're dealing with someone who's just 100% wrong in all of the details or i mentioned satan in paradise lost for that matter right um he says he has some pretty persuasive arguments if you accept a couple of the early premises um and why is that relevant? Well, I think it's important to note that in the classics, when you have the 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 villain uh, in this case, they 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 make good arguments a lot of the time. There there are reasons why, and I think that's the key. There are reasons why they feel the way that they do. Um, and then on the other side of it, the protagonists, the heroes, if you if you want to call them that, uh, which I would they they also have particular reasons why they are sympathetic in those particular ways but you mentioned to have a, a decent character drama you kind of have to have this play back and forth right and that makes sense because if a character is going to be both round and deep well they're not round if they are the one good man right because then they're a they're a stock character now they're flat and they're not dynamic if they are the one good man because they don't need to develop anymore. They're already perfect. And that mean and if they're already perfect, it means that anyone who opposes them must necessarily be in the wrong. Um which by the way is Satan's argument for going up against God against Paradise Lost is he presumes himself to be right and so therefore he's justified. Yep. <laughs> so that doing that as an author is perhaps a bad idea, um, but I don't know. Taking it with by the way, this is kind of a, a bit of an aside, but that's why the modern quote unquote hero in a lot modern and by modern I really mean postmodern. If you look at the the academic side of it, why the hero in a lot of these stories when they they say this is the hero and they point to it, that character is doing all the things that are a traditional villain's tasks and a traditional villain's activities. Um, they are people who look at the world and look at their own ideology and just say, no, the world has to bend. My ideology doesn't bend. And then, and of course, because they're often fantasy stories, they make the world bend, which of course, you know, an actual human can't, well, can't really do. It's a little more complicated than that. But when you, when you end up not being able to describe people except as everybody against me is evil what you're basically setting up is that i and then by context my the 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 heroes that i portray my position through are actually villains by anybody else's definition and that's not a useful story obviously if you know you're writing from the perspective of a villain you can write a useful story but if you're writing a story where you're setting this hero up and the hero is doing all the villain things and then at the end, oh, you know, gets the parade like a hero and does gets a hero's ending. That is an incredibly horrific thing to be, especially 
I find it very dangerous to give that sort of story, especially to young people. That sort of story is actually going to lead to uh, potentially like measurable psych, you know, potential measurable increases in psychotic behavior because it's giving people a tool which essentially can only be used to harm people themselves first and then everybody else. Yeah, so I want to take perhaps maybe five minutes. I'm going to call this a discussion on archetypes, uh, though it's really only discussion on one archetype in particular, um, and that can be broken down into the hostile brothers. So this is essentially, um, you could think of it like uh, Cain and Abel in a sense. The uh, the character who who assumes, the author in this case, assumes that the ideology is correct. Uh, I think this is a, a division between two fundamental orientations toward, you could say it's an, an orientation toward knowledge, but I actually think it's more of an orientation toward humility. So these are the um, the Gnostic and agnostic positions, particularly in claims of absolute knowledge, right? So knowing of the truth, um, 100% with like a capital T. And what I find is when an author comes from a Gnostic position, what ends up happening inevitably is you get that ideological character because from the Gnostic position, um, if if anything contradicts your ideas, the thing that contradicts you must be considered wrong. And, you know, this goes, and, you know, as an author who, who might even have this disposition, I think actually people don't even know what they're doing. And the reason why I think that is because it, I think it, it operates at the level of an axiom, right? So if before you start thinking, that's what it means to have an axiom. It's something you take for granted that your thoughts then operate on top of. Um, that your, I say in this case, ideology is correct, then you're going to write this story and then maybe, like you mentioned, use like, uh, you know, fantasy or science fiction to warp the world to bend around the, let's say, the desires and will and outcomes that you would want for your characters. Um, and that would be from the Gnostic position as opposed to the agnostic position, which presumes that um, let's say human beings cannot know those things that are outside the realms of the capacity for a human being to know, right? So that would be like we are flawed mortal beings with limited perceptual organs and we can't, uh, you know, that, that, uh, I think the traditional way of thinking about this is like we humans cannot know the mind of God or the the fundamentals of his, his mysteries, right? Uh, God works in mysterious ways, that kind of idea. And from that perspective, the protagonist necessarily um, doesn't have all the solutions, will make mistakes, has to learn, and, and then becomes capable of being dynamic. Um, and that creates this like internal versus external, um, I don't want to use the word dialectic. I've taken to using it, and I know that that triggers uh, some, it might trigger some listeners into to thinking of a, an evil wizard. Um, but I'm going to use it anyway. It's a it's a contradiction, a conflict. Is there? That's the right word. It's a conflict between that assumption of gnosis versus agnosis, or uh, inhumility versus humility that produces these these characters. And you know, uh, the last thing I'll say is 
you know, the, the Gnostic is the spirit of Cain, who says, I am right, God, you're wrong, the world you made sucks, so I'm going to take vengeance on you because I'm going to kill my brother who accepted the way life is and pursued a better career uh, tending sheep than growing wheat in the field. Yeah, I think a lot of the, the fundamentals of the two archetypes going all the way back to uh, the concept of Cain and Abel, I think there, there's a lot to that. Um, and both in the context of authors doing their own work going forward, they tend to fall into one of these two camps. And one of them produces great literature. The other one produces what we traditionally call propaganda. There is a market for both. I prefer to avoid uh, the propaganda. I hope you do as well. Um, but the, the sort of Gnostic perspective that you describe produces things that can only be described as propaganda. It, it is no, uh, it isn't literature in the classic sense because in the classic sense, fiction, especially the, with, from the tradition of Greek tragedy and Greek Greek plays in general, comes from perspective that the ends, the the the, the actions in in the play have to define the ends, and the whole perspective of that sort of Cain mindset of a of a writer is, well, clearly the actions. I'm taking aren't having the right response. So instead, I'm going to write a story where the same actions produce the response I want. Well, there we go. Uh, it's not a healthy perspective, um, but a lot of people fall into it because it's easy. It's it's so tempting. But you also see this in characters, in actual characterization inside of stories. And this is the fundamental hero versus villain thing. A character who is on a heroic or positive character arc is somebody who uh, brings their mindset, their ideology, their thought process in line with the responses they're getting from the world. And a character's on a negative or villainous arc is somebody who is going to uh, see the response from the world and then say, nope, my ideology is right anyway. And obviously, the, the famous line um, that became famous, even though it's horrific, is uh, Adam Savage's famous line, I reject your reality and substitute it with my own. That is a fundamental villainous uh, statement of purpose. It is basically saying, yep, I prefer my way better. Even if observed reality doesn't meet it, I'm going to live inside of it, and I'm going to basically punish myself with it because, well, the world isn't going to map itself to you. Not really. Again, there's there's a bit of a gray area on that, which is kind of outside this conversation, but the world doesn't really map to your ideology. and. We can see that from history. We can also see that from individual um, stories and individual experiences, and that is reflected in stories. But it's very, it's very easy for people who have that Cain mindset themselves to try to then give that same mindset to their quote-unquote hero and try to make it seem like a heroic mindset, even though there's no way it can be. No, and it's uh, I, I won't go go on and on about it, but I, that. You know that quote: "I substitute your reality with my own." There's a kind of uh, radical subjectivism at the bottom of it, of it that requires propaganda, and at the end, a kind of force. Whether that end up being, you know, merely social coercion or shame, social shaming, all the way down to literal force uh, when it comes down to it, that you must accept my let's say, notions and, and ways of conceiving reality, which I, I definitely think is dangerous, especially um, especially for young people. Um, 
even more dangerous than Buddhism. That's a, a reference to Tsunetomo and the Hagakure. He, t- he said it's dangerous to teach young people about Buddhism, which I agree. Um, <laughs> I want to move on to uh, a conversation while we still have time about self-inserts, self-insert characters. Um, if, if you're ready, I would like you just to take it away. What do you think about self-insert characters? So this might be not the answer you were expecting. I don't consider the self-insert itself to be a bad thing. Self-insert is literally just having a character who is pretty much you, your perspective, your skills, your negative traits such as they are, dropped into the story in a place where you think it makes sense. At that level, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Where it becomes a bad thing is where, and I've specifically come up with another term for when it becomes a bad thing because I wanted to separate these two things out um, because I understood this difference, is I call it avataring is when your self-insert becomes attached to your own ego, their success is your success in some way. And it becomes like, um, it becomes a, like a challenge. You are, you're writing challenges for yourself to defeat. So you can sit there in your, at your writing desk and flex your weak little spaghetti muscles and say, ah, see my self-insert beat all those orcs. He beat demons. He fought God and he won. And yes, I have read that story and it hurt a lot. My brain still hasn't recovered and it's been years. Um, when you see avataring, and this is something that you, again, I, I kind of led into this discussion talking about my background in, in uh, role-playing games. This is something I saw there first, and then I was like, okay, I'll never see this in writing. And I moved over into writing circles, and it was everywhere. Um, essentially, these these are people who, their egos, you know, they've had a couple ego hits recently, and they, they write a story where they win, basically. It's a power fantasy. And that's where it becomes a problem. And the trick is there's no one line between the two. You can slip from a perfectly reasonable self-insert character to avataring very easily. And that's one of the reasons I try not to use them. I have, and I don't necessarily recommend it, but I try not to because it's easy to slip from one into the other. It's easy for it to become personal because you recognize yourself in that character. So it's not necessarily wrong to use a yourself in your story. You just have to use a lot of extra caution to make sure your ego stays out of it. Because once your ego is involved, everything is going to burn down totally. Yes. Um, I actually agree with you about self-inserts not being the problem. And the avataring, as you, I like that term quite a lot, actually, because avatar has a lot of connotations where you, are, your, like you mentioned your ego is really tied up into it. Um, self-inserts, in my experience, insofar as I've seen them be okay, is when you do with them the same thing you would do with any other character, right? So like any other good protagonist, they are not the, you know, the one good man. They are not the perfect uh, character. They are flawed. uh, And if it's a proper self-insert, they have your flaws, right? Um, And they, those flaws get in the way. And uh, I've actually made the argument that uh, people can basically do uh, what is a, a union shadow analysis, right? Where you write out your self-insert and you put them in a conflict um, that is that has some depth to it. It can't just be like needs to do violence to these baddies over here, right? So like a real drama. And then you ask yourself, like, what are the actual means that, are, that would realistically get this self-insert through or in or out? And what would fail? And, you know, what... And and you start to ask yourself those questions, and and you see the consequences, um, with the idea that you can actually gain to some personal growth by working out 
let's say, your own internal conflicts through a character trying to work out those internal conflicts. Uh, do you think that the, that's a valid use of uh, self-insert characters? I think that could potentially be useful, but I'm not sure I'd want to share that story if I ever did that with anybody else. That's the sort of thing where you're writing it for your own benefit, and it's probably going to be pretty personal. That's on the level of a journal. So if you're sharing that out, uh, I mean, you'd better be pretty stout of heart because, oof, that would that would hurt. Um, and I'm somebody who shares first drafts, and I, I say I wouldn't share that. So, uh. <laughs> But uh, the other thing to keep in mind, though, is the avataring term that I use, it doesn't actually just refer to self-inserts that go this way. You actually see people doing this with characters that are nothing like themselves for the same reason, actually. They are kind of – maybe they're not so happy with who they are, and they basically just create somebody who is often opposite to themselves. Um, I see this a lot with – actually, what I see this most commonly, um, I see this with uh, female writers who are writing a – the 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 male the masculine male heartthrob in a fantasy romance becomes an avatar of that female character because that person is basically the 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 ultimate picture of who they want to bang and i I, i'm being crass because i don't take it seriously and i think it's silly and that you shouldn't do this um so don't but yeah you do see it occasionally with people writing characters that are nothing like themselves and still become so tied up with their own ego that it becomes basically a story destructive force yeah, so it's it's a it's a danger zone to even start to wade into. Um, do you have any examples on hand of um, let's say established uh, fictional characters that we happen to know are self inserts that you thought were yes. done well? If you have seen it, and I doubt you have, uh, the Marvel show Miss Marvel is based on a uh, – it's totally an avatar. The creator of the character is Sana Aminat, who just basically said, yeah, the character is basically me with superpowers. And yeah, I haven't read the comic book. I haven't seen anything but some parts of the show, but I've gone through the breakdown extensively with the help of people like on YouTube, like EFAP. If you don't know them, highly recommend. Um, the show is pathetic. And the character is a self-insert who basically just gets away with things because, you know, that's how it is. Um, so that that is one example in published media, though it's not a very successful one. Uh, there are others. Um, the most famous one, I think, recently is actually Galadriel in The Rings of Power. Uh, was a self-insert of the uh, Jennifer Salky, who is the uh, the boss of Amazon's TV division, who basically just made the writers put her into the show, as far as anybody can tell. Well, those are some examples of it not going well. Um, I actually have a yes. uh, couple examples of it going a little bit better, but let's check on time. It's uh, Do you have a hard out? I can go a few minutes over. I think I'm all right. Okay, so this won't be long. So the, I always bring up these characters, um, but <clears throat> so uh, I, I really like H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard, both of which um, did self-inserts to a certain degree. Conan as a whole is uh, what you just described. It's who Robert E. Howard wished he he was. Um, but I actually find the Conan stories to be entertaining, and I don't I don't find them to be, um, despite the fact that Conan is like you know, superhuman in terms of his his physical abilities. Uh, there's still something compelling about his character. Um, you know that he's going to win out in the end of each story, but you know. It it doesn't have that feel of, okay, here's someone uh, bending reality to them. Uh, and the other particular with H.P. Lovecraft, um, 
the dream quest for unknown Kadoth is uh, 100% Lovecraft putting himself into his own dream yeah, quest. I uh, actually really like that story. That's a really good one. I think that's an underserved Lovecraft story. People always talk about Call of Cthulhu, Mountains of Madness. Dream Quest for Unknown Kadath could really use a lot more attention. I agree. I actually wrote my uh, one of my master's papers on Dream Quest for Unknown Kadath. Um, and yeah, it's got a it's got a ton of depth to it. Um, in, in a very kind of I mean it's a dream story, so it's nice that it has the meandering pattern mm -hmm. to it. Um, but in both of those cases, I I find the inserts they might as well not be in self inserts, even though post like post facto we you know we happen to know that they are. Um, what is it that you think makes these examples work? And if you can, if you have any other successful examples to bring up, um, you can bring those up as well. But why why do these work when others are just so god awful? Before I forget it, uh, the one I thought up while you were thinking that's a good example of it working, a lot of Philip K. Dick's secondary work had himself often named himself, like as the character's name was Philip Dick, um, in some of his secondary science fiction novels. And a lot of that, he was the butt of his own jokes. His mental illnesses were clearly on, on show. And whether they were played up for the story or not, I don't know. But he actually did it really well, where his own issues crippled his character's ability to progress in a lot of ways and he needed help from the other characters so that's one example where it's done rather well i think that might be just because philip dick was a little on the unstable side though that he was able to write himself so negatively and not lose it maybe he did lose it anyway um why they work i think it's it's an ego thing you're talking about writers who had a a good sense of themselves but also they didn't they 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 weren't they weren't reading their own copy. They weren't believing their own press, in a sense. They were people who who knew their own limitations in a very, not necessarily, um, uh, sorry, the, trying to figure out the right word to say this, but they, they had that sense that they were flawed humans, even if they were making some success. And obviously, I think Lovecraft was getting reasonably successful in his own lifetime. Philip K. Dick certainly was. They they didn't necessarily see themselves as a superhuman force or somebody special. They were just somebody with a talent who was also keenly aware of their own flaws. And that let them do it, do these sorts of self-insert things in, a, in a, a successful way. Most authors and writers and creators who succeed at this, however, make their, themselves a secondary character. It takes, it takes a lot of guts to do it right with yourself as a main character. Um, and it takes a lot of skill because that, tendency to push yourself toward toward attaching that character to your ego is very strong so you might have to be a little bit crazy to do it right when you're the protagonist of your own story i would i would i would say so um uh, i know that you have looked at some of uh some of the a story in particular where i played around with um essentially with the self-insert uh what i kind of describe as like a, a union shadow projection so i took um some say dark thoughts or just like you mentioned things that you probably wouldn't want to show people uh to be frank uh and put them out on the paper and sometimes they're just you know wild considerations you know sort of like how uh lots of people have um kind of fantasies of things that they wouldn't actually want to manifest in real life um and you don't have to answer this here live on the broadcast but um 
I'm actually curious, since you've seen some of my work, uh, whether or not you felt like um, I have been able to handle my ego okay with the characters, uh, or the character, I should say, involved, or if uh, you've seen some of these flaws. Uh, if you have, what are they? So I can, uh, I can correct them. I have seen uh, some of it. I think one of the um, one of the things you do is you you ground yourself regularly. And I th if the character you're talking about is the one I'm thinking of, which it probably is, it seems to be that you you spend a lot of time making sure that that character is reliably incorrect, is reliably failing at things, not in a way that causes the story to derail, but a way that makes the story progress. Um, keeping that character grounded in a sense that they don't get to succeed for very long uh, might help there. Um, the way that um, the way that I, I see that in a lot of people's work is they have that character just be better than everybody or most people. And when you have that character be good at things, but also reliably not being up to the task of getting the getting the story done and actually needing the help of people with different perspectives, you end up um, you end up dealing with it in a much more grounded way. And I know that's not what happened in things like Conan. Conan doesn't really need, in most stories, he doesn't really need the people's help, with the exception of maybe knowledge for where to stab the baddie um, to figure out how to get out of a particular uh, incident. But when you when you're when you're writing it, if your character needs other people to to get out okay, then you're probably on the right track. If your character is basically just has other people following along just for quippy, whippy, for, sorry, quippy dialogue and uh, the occasional comedic relief, you probably are in trouble. You know, that makes sense because it, it gives that character a chance to have some humility, right? Some chance to have some egg on their face um, to make yes, them, yeah, make them more human. Uh, oh, and I'm glad that I, I, I do that. Okay, I need to maybe do it some more. Um, well, thank you for that, Captain. Uh, now we're coming toward the the end of our or past the end of our hour. Is there anything else in regard to character in particular that you wanted to talk about? Just glancing at my notes here, we covered at least uh, part of every section of my notes. Uh, if if I were to try to as you've probably seen by me posting random screeds on writing topics, I could probably talk about any subject when writing it would flow into any other subject and you'd be talking forever so uh if you want to bound it here this is a pretty good spot all right yeah i think we'll uh we'll wrap things up here uh before we go i want to remind you all that you again can take part in this podcast i won't put the whole list again uh but if you'd like to recommend a topic or even come on the podcast itself um you can contact me i'm all over different social media at marquise d little or you can just go directly to my website wildowlit.com while you are there check out my editing service uh wild isle style guide uh or if you're just looking for a good book you can um check out my novel Wand smoke broken it's a weird fantasy novel reads with a kind of western-esque kind of uh feel to it lots of uh, muzzle-loading gunfights and uh terrible occult magic um and i think that's it uh are you sure there's nowhere that you want to send people to, to find you michael uh no i i mean if anybody wants to follow me and read my various ramblings about writing I am on Minds. It is my only social media profile. I don't have any presence anywhere else because I would go crazy if I did. Um, you can find me on Minds if you do care 
uh, minds.com slash A-E-T-E-R-N-I-S. Um, I don't have anything out there for, pub- for publication at the moment. I kind of wish I did. But thank you for having me. You're very welcome. I'll make sure to link this to the uh, the video so everyone can find you. And uh, sure. thank you for coming on. Anytime. Thanks for having me.